We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we're uh, doing Politics Friday, episode 20. And uh, we're going through Christianity and the Constitution, and I guess we're going to be working on the founding fathers next is that right bob that's correct and hampton you got to get excited because okay because <laughs> <laughs> it's uh episode 20 we're getting up there already hampton it goes by so quick i'm excited and uh we're gonna have a great time today on this subject but here's how i want to start out <clears throat> i want to start out reading a chapter of the bible this is first samuel chapter one but here's why i want to do that there are many ways to summarize the biblical message the one that strikes home to me the most is uh, starting of course at the beginning the lord creates heaven and earth uh let me ask you a couple of questions, not to, in any way to put you on the spot. I know you know these answers, but really when I ask you a question, I'm asking our listeners in the beginning, that's how the Bible starts out. But my question would be, where were heaven and earth? I think you know what I'm asking. Where were they? Well, they were all, yeah, not, not geographically. You mean, you mean before he created heavens and earth? No, no. no. When, You're saying when that they were all, it was all one? It was heaven and earth were one thing. At the end of the Bible, last couple chapters of Revelation, where are heaven and earth? I guess they're one thing again. They're one thing again. So imagine the power of that. Not being a movie guy, Hampton. <laughs> but I did one time happen to attend a movie with my wife and daughter. And we saw like the remake of Beauty and the Beast. And it's so, you know, I prefer not going with them to movies and listening when they get back. You know, okay, Kathy, tell me about the movie. And then, okay, Sophia, tell me about the movie. And hearing their different perspectives. I, I love doing that. But so we get home from the movie and I said, how did that, what was the first scene of that movie? And in the remake, it's his party in the castle in like the French Alps. Mm -hmm. The last scene of that movie is a party in that castle 
in the French Alps and everything's better. You know, the guy has become a beast, but now he's back to being the prince and all that. But now he's pure. You know, now he's stood the test of fire. And so I said, that's, that's a very biblical concept. You get heaven and earth, one thing at the beginning, heaven and earth, one thing at the end. But now, now it's glued together. Now it's inseparable, right? It's been through the fire and it's all put back together. Not the same. It's better now. There's been progress. So within that kind of context, Adam's job description stated clearly in Genesis, first two chapters, really chapter one, is to rule the earth. Now that is a political statement, I would say. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> throughout the putting heaven and earth back together in the scriptures, you get these snapshots of mankind trying to rule the earth. And it's difficult because heaven and earth are separate once they're put back together then you can rule it and jesus christ the second adam will be on his throne ruling heaven and earth just like it was always designed to be but in the meantime the closest we got to ruling the earth the way god designed it to be was solomon, solomon. Solomon, son of David, right? Jesus is called son of David. But under Solomon's reign, David had subdued all the enemies around Israel. So Solomon's reign was a reign of peace. And, you know, the blessings were just overflowing. Remember the tremendous statements about the wealth of the nation of Israel under Solomon. One kingdom then, they had not yet split into judah and israel mm -hmm. they were just just one nation and my favorite statement about their wealth under solomon's reign was silver had no value because there was so much gold right so so god had blessed them and at the beginning of solomon's reign he he completes not beginning like day one but in in the early descriptions of solomon's reign he completes the construction of the temple which is Here's, here's how to think about the temple. The temple is the presence of God, right? right. Eden in Genesis 1 and 2 is described as a temple. We'll go over that in detail at some point. But for right now, just take my word on that. So here's Solomon, and he, he creates, builds the temple, and God indwells it. In other words, heaven and earth are getting back together. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Of course, Solomon drops a ball, <laughs> right? right? And then we got the, the long wait until the real son of David and then ultimately the son of David's return. But first Samuel starts the history of uh, that political kind of rule where we're going to move from the judges to the kings and we'll have an exposition in my thinking of what it means to rule the earth. So we'll start out by reading a chapter every episode. So here's 1 Samuel chapter one. I'm reading from a translation you might be familiar with Hampton. In fact, the Bible I'm reading from has your signature in the front of it. Well, I have that same Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the net. There was a man 
from Ramathane Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite, Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the first was Hannah. Name of the second was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man would go up from his city year after year to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven's armies at Shiloh. It was there that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the Lord's priests. The day came and Elkanah sacrificed. Now he used to give meat portions to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved Hannah. Although the Lord had not enabled her to have children, her rival used to aggravate her to the point of exasperation, just to irritate her, since the Lord had not enabled her to have children. This is how it would go year after year. As often as she went up to the Lord's house, Penina would offend her that way. So she cried and refused to eat. Then her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you so upset? Am I not, am I not better to you than 10 sons? So Hannah got up after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. At the time, Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's sanctuary. As for her, she was very distressed. She prayed to the Lord and was, in fact, weeping. She made a vow, saying, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you would truly look on the suffering of your servant and would keep me in mind and not neglect your servant, give your servant a male child, then I'll dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. It turned out that she did a great deal of praying before the Lord. Meanwhile, Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her mind. Only her lips were moving. Her voice could not be heard. So Eli thought she was drunk, a drunkard. Then he said to her, how much longer do you intend to get drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah replied, not so, my Lord. I'm a woman under a great deal of stress. I haven't drunk wine or beer, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Don't consider your servant a wicked woman. It's just that to this point, I've spoken from my deep pain and anguish. Eli replied, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request that you've asked of him. And she said, may I, your servant, find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, got something to eat, and her face no longer looked sad. They got up early the next morning. Then they worshiped the Lord and returned to their home at Ramathame. Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah. The Lord called her to mind. Then Hannah became pregnant. In the course of time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, thinking, I asked the Lord for him. 
Then the man Elkanah and all his family went up to make the yearly sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go up with them because she told her husband, not until the boy is weaned, then I'll bring him so that he may appear before the Lord and he'll remain there from then on. Then her husband Elkanah said to her, do what you think best. Stay until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord fulfill his promise. So the woman stayed, nursed her son until she'd weaned him. Then she took him up with her. As soon as she had weaned him, along with three bowls, an ephah of flour, and a container of wine, she came to the Lord's house at Shiloh, and the boy was with them. They slaughtered the bull, then brought the boy to Eli. She said, my Lord, just as surely as you are alive, my Lord, I'm the woman who previously stood here with you in order to pray to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me the request that I asked of him. So I also dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life. He's dedicated to the Lord. Then he bowed down there in worship to the Lord. That's chapter one, Hampton, of First Samuel. Yeah, I anything like cross I like, I like anything cross your mind? Yeah, what? Well, I like the story of Samuel. Um, I can't help but think about Eli. He wasn't a very good priest or father, and uh, you know his impression of her was wrong. Yeah, yeah. There's a. Have you ever? Everybody's had this experience, I think. You, you read a section of the word and you notice stuff you've never noticed before. And you're like, hey, I've read that a hundred times. How, how could I notice something new? What's the But it's because you? you're... Um, Anything? The first, it, it did. The uh, reference to God, the first two references to God, I've, I've closed the book in front of me now, but the first two references to God described God as, you know, the Lord, Lord of heaven's armies, right? Sometimes some translations, you'll mm -hmm. see that like the Lord Sabaoth or something like that. That seems political to me, right? The mm -hmm. Lord of heaven's armies, you know, like there's real spiritual conflict going on. And, and of course there is, this is, you know, concerning the birth of Samuel, one of the greatest heroes in the Bible. He's, he's quite a character, Samuel. Yeah, yeah. He's in a tough spot. He's the last judge, and he's going to anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. But uh, those, are power, those are powerful scenes. And, I, and I'm reminded, you know, I knew, know this, but it was much further in the back of my mind that it should have been. But Samuel's a Nazarite, right? He's, yeah, I had forgotten that. Yeah. So that's what stood out to me. Okay, so on to this morning, we are starting the founding fathers as individuals, not every one of them, but to see what some of the main characters who uh, developed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of our country, uh, to see what all they were about. We, we laid the theological foundation and historical foundation and essentially concluded that John Calvin was the real founder of America. Right. But today we'll get into the individuals themselves.
you know how we have today, essentially, we, we think of politics in our country as divided into, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, those are just general statements, you know, not all Republicans think alike, not the Democrats do think more alike, but even there, they're not all alike, there's differences. So in the times of the founding fathers, you had two general camps and you had Republican and Federalist. Those things don't necessarily mean what you might think today. Right. Here's the essential difference. Okay. The, the Federalist, like Hamilton, was probably the strongest Federalist. Um, they believed more so, like on a scale of one to ten, they would be more towards the ten. They would they wouldn't be actual tens. Hamilton might have been, but they were more on the side of centralized federal power, right? That the, mm -hmm. the government would be, would have a lot of power. And the Republicans were more on the side of state power okay. as, opposed, as opposed to the federal. That's the essential difference. That, that's simplified a bit, but that's the essential difference. So Witherspoon, that's the guy we're going to look at today, John Witherspoon, which might not ring a bell to many. I know, I know it did to you. But um, he's an important guy. We'll, we'll look at his life today. He was more Republican. So he was more in favor of state power. And you could see why many of them would shy away from uh, a heavy dose of federal power. That's what they're breaking away from, right? They're, they're breaking away from centralized power in a king. So, and, and they were very concerned that power corrupted. And so they wanted more state power. Um, so anyway, Here's John Witherspoon. I'm going to read from Christianity and the Constitution by John Eidsmo. Okay. Here's the first statement about him. John Witherspoon is best described as the man who shaped the men who shaped America. All right. So when you typically think of founding fathers like Adams, Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton, Madison, and, and we will look at all those guys. But Witherspoon is the guy who shaped them. So although he did not attend the Constitutional Convention, his influence was multiplied many times over by those who spoke as well as by what was said. Witherspoon's list of accomplishments include chairman of the Somerset Committee of Correspondence, member of the New Jersey Senate, member of Congress, signer of the Declaration of Independence. However, his greatest contribution was as president of the College of New Jersey since 1896, known as Princeton University. It was there he helped train the men who'd become the leaders of the new nation. John Witherspoon was born in Scotland in 1723. His father, Reverend James Witherspoon was a Presbyterian pastor known for his piety and faithfulness. Both parents had clergymen in their family lineage. His mother traced her genealogy back to John Knox. She taught John how to read from the Bible by age four. Eventually, he was able to recite much of the New Testament and Watts' psalms and hymns. Home teaching followed by grammar school, 
prepared John for the University of Edinburgh by age 13. In three years, he earned his Master of Arts degree, spent four more years in Edinburgh preparing for the ministry. He became a pastor of a Presbyterian church in Bythe, Scotland, for eight years, during which time he married. At that time, Scottish Presbyterianism was split between the moderate party and the popular party. The popular party stressed the need for more Bible-centered sermons, less emphasis on philosophy and extra biblical matters in church services and local control of the church. Reverend Witherspoon became the leader of the popular party. Around 1753, a satire on the moderates called Ecclesiastical Characteristics appeared. It had been published anonymously, but was immediately attributed to Witherspoon. The 60-page pamphlet sold well in seven editions and nine reprints. It consisted of ridicule directed towards the moderates in the form of maxims allegedly held by them. So that's his, the characterization of his earliest years up through when he got married in Scotland. So when did he come Pretty, to the United States? Well, so here we go. While moderate and conservative Presbyterians battled in Scotland, their brethren in America were also engaged in controversy. The first great awakening of the 1740s and 1750s led to a division between, quote, the new lights who stressed an experience of spiritual rebirth, the old lights who stressed orthodox doctrine and constancy of Christian life. The controversy was not actually a liberal conservative dispute. In fact, each side suspected the other of liberal tendencies and proclaimed its own orthodoxy. The College of New Jersey tended toward the new light position with Jonathan Edwards as its president, but was not closely allied with either position. When the college needed a new president, its patrons looked to Witherspoon. His evangelical zeal made him acceptable to the new lights. His emphasis on morality and Christian living made him acceptable to the old lights. His orthodoxy appealed to both. In 1767, a delegation from the college traveled to Scotland and appealed to Witherspoon to take the position. He was interested at once, but his wife Elizabeth did not want to leave home and family to cross the ocean. Over the course of a year, Elizabeth consented, and in 1768, Witherspoon came to America to become the president of the College of New Jersey. Witherspoon was president of the College of New Jersey from 1768 to 1794. In those 26 years, 478 young men graduated, about 18 students per year. Of those 478 graduates, 114 became ministers. 13 were state governors. Three were US Supreme Court judges. 20 were United States senators. 33 were US congressmen. Aaron Burr 
became vice president, James Madison became president. Of the 55 delegates of the Constitutional Convention, nine were College of New Jersey graduates and six graduated while Witherspoon was president. That's a huge influence. Yeah. That's you're talking about a quarter, 25% of, you know, the movers and shakers and politics in the U S came under that guy's tutelage. That's pretty good. So that's pretty good. So here's some things about Witherspoon as a Calvinist Witherspoon was keenly aware for the need for balance between a love of Liberty and a love of order. This love for order prevented the architects of American independence from leading the nation down the path of anarchy, lawlessness, bloodthirstiness, and ultimate tyranny that characterized the French Revolution. Witherspoon was one who emphasized this balance. So one of the things we're going to get around to sooner or later, Hampton, when you quit rabbit trailing me is um, we're going to talk about the French revolution in contrast to the American revolution. They were almost day and night and day different next items about Witherspoon. While Witherspoon may have kept himself a bit aloof from his colleagues, they appeared to have respected him and many listened to him preach. John Adams attended church at the College of New Jersey and wrote, heard Dr. Witherspoon all day, a clear, sensible preacher. In 1776, Witherspoon was chosen for the Continental Congress and served as a congressional delegate from New Jersey from 1776 to 1782, wearing full clerical garb the entire period. I think I'm going to pause there just for a sec. Obviously those days were so much different than our days now, but the, the amount of Christian influence was almost total. Mm -hmm. Right. For six years, that guy shows, you know, is like a Congressman continental Congress shows up every day in his clerical garb. (laughs) Right. That that's, there was no separation in thinking between church and state. Right. During his five years in Congress, he served on more than, imagine this, Hampton, 120 committees, including the Board of War, the Committee on Secret Correspondence or Foreign Affairs, and the Committee on Clothing for the Army. His Christian commitment led him to take an active role on behalf of certain humanitarian endeavors such as kindlier treatment of prisoners, the checking of cruelty and warfare, better administration of military hospitals, the improvement of health and morals, therefore of discipline in the army. He was asked to draft the Thanksgiving Day proclamations and other appeals to public consciousness. He took an active role in the adoption of the Articles of Confederation and showed great interest and ability in government finance During this period, he is perhaps best known as a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Next little tidbit. In 1782, with his congressional duties finished and the war nearly over, 
Witherspoon returned to the College of New Jersey and continued his duties as president of the college. He remained interested in politics and served several terms, New Jersey State Assembly. His friend, Reverend Ashbell Green, reports that as Witherspoon read the letter informing him of his daughter's death. So imagine that. Here's Witherspoon gets a letter telling him that his daughter has died. Tears rolled down his manly cheeks, but he uttered not a word till he'd read it through. He then wiped away his tears, made a few remarks with composure, mounted his horse, returned immediately to Tusculum. In the ensuing weeks, he preached 16 successive sermons on the doctrine and duty of submission to the will of God, all based on Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Wow. So we can summarize all that Witherspoon was about with seven points or so. So here's number one. Witherspoon, this characterizes his life and work, had a strong faith in God and, his day, and God's daily providence on behalf of men. Second point, a recognition of the fact of human sin. <laughs> Nothing can be more absolutely necessary to true religion than a clear conviction of the sinfulness of our nature and state. He criticized those who exalted human nature. Sort of sounds like, remember how in the Truman book, we had, uh, he titled that one chapter, The Other Genevan. Right. And so he was juxtaposing Rousseau with Calvin and, and Witherspoon's as strong a Calvinist as you get. So here, here's a paragraph from Witherspoon. Men of lax and corrupt principles take a great delight in speaking to the praise of human nature and extolling its dignity without distinguishing what it was at its first creation from what it is in its present fallen state. But I appeal from these visionaries' reasonings to the history of all ages and the inflexible testimony of daily experience, candid attention either to past history or present state of the world, but above all, the ravages of lawless power out to humble us and ought to humble us in the dust. <laughs> So he, he saw evidence of the fallen nature everywhere, which is correct. Right. Emphasizing that depravity is the scriptural view of man, Witherspoon stated that the evil of sin appears from every page of the sacred oracles. Sin was also evident in human history. The history of the world's little else than the history of human guilt. He summarized, nothing is more plain from scripture or better supported by daily experience than that man by nature is in fact incapable of recovery without the power of God specially interposed. Well, wow. So for instance, 
I mean, this, this book goes to some length detailing that, but I don't want to belabor that point. He, he, it's the fallenness of man was a central plank in Witherspoon's thinking. As a result of that comes the idea of separation of powers, right? You've got to have, you got to have the different branches, the executive, the judicial and the legislative, because if you put too much power in any one branch, it'll be corrupt. So James Madison called the father of the constitution obtained his concept of separation of powers and checks and balances from Witherspoon's instruction at the college of New Jersey. And although Witherspoon derived the concept of separation of powers from other sources, such as Montesquieu, checks and balances seem to have been his own unique contribution to the founding of the U.S. government. Here's the third, isn't it? Here, here's his third point, or the third thing that characterizes Witherspoon, the absolute necessity of salvation through Christ. Fourth point about Witherspoon, the need for and right to personal, political, and religious liberty. Hmm. Fifth point about Witherspoon, a positive attitude toward independence. Sixth point about Witherspoon, good works and morality were the logical results of salvation by grace. Seventh and last point that really summarizes Witherspoon, a strong hope that America would prosper and be blessed and used of God as long as the new nation held to the principles of liberty and virtue. So there's a summary of Witherspoon, hugely influential. Yeah. Definitely. Devoutly Christian. So founders of the American uh, enterprise, John Calvin, John Witherspoon. (laughs) There you go. There you go. The next guy we'll look at is Madison. Then you're getting into people, you know, more familiar. He, of course, is often called the writer of our constitution. Um, so we'll look at length at James Madison. But you have any observations, Hampton? Well, I thought it was interesting the, the debate that was going on back then between the people who emphasized doctrine and the other side that was more into the spiritual experience. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, we still have that kind of division in our day we do and you know um it's not nancy piercy she sort of helps in this regard but there was i can't attribute this to the person who originally said it so it's not me i got this from someone else but they said concerning that debate you're mentioning if you win a a person's feelings their their emotions without winning their mind, you will soon find out you haven't won them at all. Because their feelings can change. Changes with the wind. Yeah. So it's really, 
you know, the whole person is involved. It, all those things to me describe kind of your inner life. Feelings are real. They, mm-hmm. You know, you'll have plenty of emotional references in the Bible. God will be plenty angry and plenty happy at different times, as will the characters. But that's just part of your inner life, your mind, your heart. Those are part of your, like your will, your mind, and your emotions. That's how I see the inner person. And that's all critical that those be in balance. Yeah. So I often likened that, you know, in years past to give an illustration of, of like a car. I mean, your feelings are like a great and powerful motor to your car. So when we ask the phrase, you know, what do you got under the hood? <laughs> okay. The, that's, that's important. Your mm-hmm. feelings can, can really drive you forward. That, that can be a very positive thing. But that steering wheel, that's your will. And mm-hmm. that, if, if you don't have that, it doesn't matter how strong your engine is. And finally, your mind, you know, that's what controls the steering wheel. So all of those, you know, it's like a person behind the wheel with the engine under the hood. They've all got to be there for you to make a successful journey or trip. So the whole, right. whole, whole thing's critical. I heard you, that reminds me just, I know you're rabbit trailing me here, but this is where I'd like to leave it today. The car thing reminded me, I once heard the best illustration. I can't give uh, this, this only tangentially relates, but it's such a good illustration that I got to get it out there. The pastor was a church in Dallas. I don't even remember the church. It had been one I, I hadn't attended before I was going with a friend. And the pastor was illustrating God's direction for an individual's life. You know, we often pray, um, you know, show me, right? We need, we need information from God, right? What should I do? Direct me. Should I metaphorically go left or right or straight? What should I do here? And often we use that stuff piously as an excuse, right? To not make it. Somebody will ask you something and you'll say, you know, I need to pray about that. And really what that means is I, I just don't want to tell you right now, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, this was so good, Hampton. He said, imagine we, we, on the one hand, we sort of want God to lay out our whole life before us so that we can follow that course. And his illustration was, have you ever been asked to a party? And this, this was a Dallas crowd. I knew exactly what he was talking about. There was a part of Dallas when I was there, like in the early 80s, late 70s, of that was you know being built so quickly and they had these massive apartment complexes. And if you were going to a party at somebody's apartment, your chances of finding that apartment without making a mistake were almost zero. You know, you'd say, okay, where's the party? And the guy would say, well, it's at uh, Shady Grove, whatever. I'm just making up names, right? Apartment, you know, complex J, unit 10. And so you're, oh, oh, okay. So you drive over there. There's no way you find that without a mistake. Those things are never numbered chronologically, right? Mm-hmm. You get, oh, J, A, B, C, D. It doesn't go that way. You know, it'll be A, B, L, 
X, Z, right? And the numbers aren't sequential. You, you would never find it on your first try and often be really frustrated about that. So the pastor said, so even though the, the person giving you directions could lay the whole thing out, you never get there on your first try. He goes, now imagine this contrast. Say the host of the party, you ask him, hey, how do I get there? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just come over to your place and we'll get in the car and I'll sit next to you and tell you what to do step by step. What are your odds of getting there exactly first time? 100%. 100%. And that, that was his point, right? God doesn't reveal to you the entire plan of your life. In, you know, implied it's because you'd goof up, you know, it, you'd make a wrong turn, even though you knew the big picture, it, it would actually, con the big picture would confuse you. Whereas if Jesus, you know, answers your prayer, take a left here, go straight, take a right, go over here, get in this right, just step by step, you, you'll accomplish exactly what God wants. It was such a good illustration. I love that. I've never, never forgotten it. Yeah, it's good. So that's where I'd like to leave it today, Hampton. Okay. Well, well, uh, who would we're doing? John Adams next? No, uh, Madison. John. Oh, James Madison. James Madison. Okay. Well, until next time, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Hampton. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm -hmm.